This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. You guys know what we talk about. Endlessly, <laughs> how to invest Warren Buffett style. And, you know, just in case you guys don't know or you're just joining the podcast or whatever, although if you joined it, you probably started with number one. You know, Go start with number one. years ago. You know, that's what most people have done. I think number I one know. is our by far most played episode. And I just love I that because most podcasts... The the recent episodes are the most played ones. Um, yeah, so it's pretty cool when people go Either back that or and start we're just, at the beginning. We just get worse and worse and worse as it goes. And it's very <laughs> it's possible. The, it's the best one, and everyone <laughs> says just listen to number one. That'll be the only one you really need. They just um, get so boring <laughs> after that, and it's just like horrible. To in the to weeds, go on and on about Buffett style investing. <laughs> Yeah, deep in the weeds for sure. And uh, well, in any case, just to recap, uh, we just uh, basically run, this podcast is we entertain ourselves, and I ask a million questions that I'm curious about. The end. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And and by the and way, you this run. is not. Go ahead. This this is not theoretical investing. I I manage you know well over a hundred million dollars and. And uh, this is real money we're talking about here, and this is how we invest it. I have a have a group of people, analysts that work with me, and I've trained them to do this kind of investing. And I, I've actually, speaking of that, it's hilarious. None, none of my analysts have any sort of formal education in investing. They don't have MBAs. They've never worked for uh, institutional investing shops. They don't have accounting degrees. And I've found that... Um, People who do have all those things are really hard. It's harder for them to understand this stuff. It's it's like um, it's like riding a backwards bike almost. It's, you know, if you I don't know if you've ever seen that, but like where they they set a gear so that if you turn the handlebars of a bike to the right, it turns left. It's called <laughs> no, riding a backwards bike. No. Okay, so how long? By the way, this is to the point. How long do you think it would take you to learn? How to ride a backwards bike to turn the wheel left to go right right i mean surely it couldn't take some time between a, a short time and a long time i don't know okay so the guy that invented this as a metaphor for dealing with things differently than usual differently than the paradigm personally took eight months working on it every day before he could sort of ride the bike straight and when he finally figured it out he couldn't ride a normal bike he just crashed and he would demonstrate all the time on stage around the world uh, in this stock. This is a he does a talk about software development in the context of riding a backwards bike, how to do software development completely differently. Um, and he would bring the bike up on stage and then he would have volunteers come up and he would say, look, I'll, I'll give you two hundred dollars if you can ride this bike 10 feet. <laughs> and nobody could. Yeah, no one ever rode the bike 10 feet. Can't even ride it two feet. You immediately fall over. So it's quite a quite a good metaphor for being stuck in a paradigm. And if you've learned 
um, how to invest via the Ivy League or uh, any place where they've taught efficient market theory, which is everywhere. If you've ever worked for an institutional fund, if you've ever worked for the SEC, if you've ever worked for a financial advisor, you are locked into a paradigm which is completely wrong. It, it is absolutely. I don't know. False. I just, I just really don't like these like giant generalizations. Oh, Every time so you bring them wrong. up, it's just like. You dude, need to, you know, honestly, lots of people who went to lots of smart schools and are smart like understand this. <laughs> right. Well, let's see if they actually invest this way, uh, or even more to the point, my point. This is my point, Danielle. It's very hard to have someone work for me who comes from that background. Okay. I have interviewed lots of people. It's really difficult for, for them to get it on a deep level. Whereas when you just come in and going like, I don't know anything. And we say, okay, here's what you, here's the first thing is that high rates of return don't require higher rates of risk. That's completely false. Number one. Number two, the, the amount of of distance the stock price moves around relative to the S&P 500 moving around is completely irrelevant as to the actual risk of the business. It's completely artificial. And these are fundamental building blocks of modern portfolio theory. These are the things that the SEC requires you to know if you're a financial analyst or if you're a financial advisor and you're going to manage other people's money. You have to answer the questions on the test that these things matter, that you have to understand sharp ratios and capital asset pricing models and beta. And it's just BS. It is absolutely BS. So while it's true that people who have learned this have, you know, managed to get beyond it, like friends of yours, like Guy and mine, like Guy Spear, certainly was absolutely indoctrinated in modern portfolio theory at Oxford and Harvard and on Wall Street. And Guy broke out. But the breaking out was so unusual and so life-changing that he wrote a whole book about it. About breaking out, right? Well, by the way, what's yeah, let's kinda. plug Guy's book. What's the name of Guy's book? Like um, the education of a value investor, right? Right. It's called the education of a value investor. Spear S P I E R. Great yeah. book. Great book. I don't know that um, he talks that much in that book about rejecting his education. Exactly. I think it's more uh, understanding that you can focus long-term. I think that was the big change that he made. One, long-term versus, you know, quarterly. And two, that um, the the long-term, how do I put this without saying values? Because he doesn't so much focus on values of a company, but it's like the, the long-term plan, the strategy, where's this company going, who's running it, all of those things that we always talk about and that Buffett's looking at are are how he shifted. Uh-huh. Well, I'm going to stipulate that Guy doesn't invest according to modern portfolio theory. And neither does Manesh Pabrai, who right. wrote another book. Well, you can you still know, understand it. Called Dondo Investor. That is phenomenal and is absolutely about blowing up the paradigm of it's about finding another paradigm and it's a, yeah. it's about a backwards bike. And, and so yeah. any case, like, I think that what you guys are learning on this podcast, if you're learning anything, is that there's a different paradigm out there for investing that Buffett's been using for 70 years. And 
and some of the best investors in the world have copied him in this paradigm. And in my opinion, perhaps the best investor in the world, Lee Lu, uh, who's compounding money at 30% a year or something, um, is basically saying, look, I, he studied, I, I'm going to quote him because, or reference him because I haven't done a deep study on all the other ways you could possibly invest. I've certainly seen a lot of them, but I haven't studied it deeply in terms of people's returns. But Lee Lu's pretty deep, and he said that he studied them and that none of them are remotely close to the effectiveness of this style of investing that we're trying to teach you guys. Mm-hmm. That buy and hold is a fiction of, of academic imagination. Buy and hold looks really good when you look at a 200-year time period and you compare stocks against any other kind of investment, real estate, bonds, gold, hold the dollar, anything else is dwarfed by the rate of returns of stocks if you can hold for 200 years. But if you can only hold for 20, stock market can give you a zero return for 20 years and has done so many, many times over the last 140 years. So Wait a second. This directly relates to our discussion going on. What does? This, what are you saying? What you're saying is that Lee Lu says that buy and hold is a bad strategy. So what does he call his strategy? He's he's a Warren Buffett 101. Buffett? Right. Buffett. But are you sells saying that he Because I actually don't remember this from the article that we that we both read that well, I said. What, you, what is your question? I'm trying to ask the question. What is his like, how does he describe his strategy if it's not buy and hold? He doesn't describe his strategy other than call it, he says, you know, for lack of a better term, he says it's value investing. Okay. But value investing isn't about buy and hold. I mean, if you buy stocks and you hold them for 40 years, you could easily have a 20-year period where your return is zero. Yeah, What absolutely. his point is, is that, Lee Lu is much more in the in terms of the earlier Warren Buffett that we've talked about versus the later Warren Buffett who's sitting on a hundred billion dollars mm, mm. and has no ability to be nimble in the market and who vastly impacts anything he owns by getting out of it. So he what Buffett does now is not what we should do. If if you're trying to build a portfolio, um, I mean it's just the the long term hold can just be too long. And that's Lee Lu's point is it can be 20 years of zero rate of return. And what we want to do then is do what Buffett did to build his fortune, if we're trying to build a fortune, and that is to get out of stuff when it gets to intrinsic value or above, and then buy with a margin of safety and do that over and over and over again. The problem is, as we talked about last week, is that the last 12, 13 years have been a nightmare. Yeah. Not not 12 years. That's all way wrong. If you you bought any time in 2009, 2010, 2011, you'd have been fine. But yeah. after about 2015, things got pricey. I'd say it's like and, the last seven, eight years is when yeah. people have started. That's when people started saying like, it's getting to be about the time where we would maybe have a, that's sort of the first like talk of correction, right. talk of drops, right. talk of, oh, it's been a good market for a while, Yep. which to us has felt like, <laughs> to me has felt like forever because that's yeah. when I first started learning. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. 
They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Yeah, in 2009, you know, we started, we started unloading some positions from 2009 and 2016. And part of it is a kind of sense that it, about every seven years, we, you know, on average, we'd have a recession. And 2016, the market started to crumble. But then it turned right back around again, being mm-hmm. stimulated by Federal Reserve printing money. Did it again in 2018, crumbled, and then turned right around as they printed even more money. Then 2020, they just printed a ton of money. And we've talked about this. They've printed, I think, I don't know, I'm going to get this wrong, but ballpark, you know, 60% of all the money ever printed has been printed in the last 15 years. So um, this is all very stimulative until it isn't. And we're now at a point where it isn't. And I'm not saying it isn't. They could print money. It would stimulate the hell out of things. It's just that the downside is starting to happen, which is the inflation rate has jumped and it's starting to become embedded as people are, uh, particularly in a tight labor market like we have in the United States, people are able to demand higher wages. They're leaving their jobs and they're moving on and getting 20, 30, 40% wage increases by moving to another position as companies are desperate to get good people. So it's there's that starts to embed the inflation rate as people yeah. start to make more money, spend more money and so on. So, yeah, we're, we're there, I guess. Well, is I'm, the bottom line. I'm just we're really there. intrigued by this whole discussion because I think it's in a lot of ways for me, like kind of the next level of learning, because as I read that email last time, um, from Rob, he said, you know, Danielle has something like Danielle has integrated this idea that when you buy a company, you buy it forever. And that's right. I have very much integrated that idea. And I think we spent hours debating that. And finally, you know, I I got it and I agreed and I have, I will hold that in my heart. So I think this next sort of level of complication, is that the right word? Um, Of like, oh, wait a second. You actually buy it with the idea that you would hold it forever, but then you probably don't. Is is where I'm struggling around all this conversation of like you sell when you hit intrinsic value and what what the strategy is around going in and out of a great company. Well, give it give it about changed. 5 to 10 years and you won't struggle with this anymore because you're going to live through a period where that looks brilliant. That looks just brilliant because Stocks are going to be cheap and then they're going to bounce back up and then you sell them and then they go cheap again and they bounce back up and you sell them. I told yeah. you it went from like 1964 until 1983. That's what happened for 19 years. Stock market never cleared 1,000 on the Dow for 18, 19 years. And during that time period, I think roughly 12 times the market went down and back up. Mm-hmm. And if you had just sat there, your rate of return would have been roughly zero for that whole time period. And anything you bought 
well, assuming you bought it at a good price, you would have doubled, you would have doubled, right? You, you, let's say you bought something really, really good price, uh, you know, 50% off in 1964, and um, you would have gotten the benefit of a double by the fact that it went back up, the market went back up to a thousand and that stock presumably went back up to its intrinsic value. Mm -hmm. And then you would have also gotten, so that's a double over a 20 year period, roughly. That's 3% which per isn't year. isn't good, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you would have gotten the growth rate of that company, which yeah. would have still been probably pretty good. It probably would have been on average 7% a year. And maybe if it was a really good company, uh, you might've gotten 12. In other words, you might've gotten 15, 16% per year, which was still been very, very good, right? So, uh, you know, trust me, buying and holding a company that's a really good company is not a bad idea. It's just not gonna get you to 26% per year returns. It's not gonna get you to a double every three years across the entire portfolio. So, and, and by the way, the people that held, bought and held the stocks from our first workshop in Singapore, in 2009 had they done that's mind-boggling rates of return right <laughs> they bought at the I perfect mean, time yeah and um, just sat on it well or they sold four years later right like according to the strategy they should have sold and had cash for the last eight years yeah i mean that would have been worse that would have been worse for sure um for sure so this brings me to my next question which comes from rob but also Buffett. So Rob asked this question. Uh, uh, Buffett asked is, you a question? Sadly, no. Oh. I Damn. am inspired by his actions. Okay. In my question. Wouldn't that be amazing if Buffett asked me a question? Warren Buffett sent Danielle a yeah. question about how to invest. He texted me. <laughs> yeah, he texted me. <laughs> um. No, the question is. I'd say if that happened, Warren's slipping off the edge. I would be. I would be worried. That's true. That should really raise the alarm. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Um, All right, let's get to it. The question is: Are there certain companies that you would treat differently? Are there certain kinds of companies that are the Buy and hold for 50 years for your entire investing career, assuming nothing changes, obviously. But are there certain companies that you treat differently? You don't dance in and out of and you just hold them as an owner. And that's Rob's question. But the Buffett inspired part is that he has four or five companies that he's held for 40 50 years and has not sold bought sold bought now part of that to your point is that his structure doesn't really allow him to do that um <laughs> that's, that's a big part which maybe is the reason but he has made like a really big point in his letters that he considers these companies to be in their own category. And I forget what he calls them exactly, but it's something like life ownership or lifers or hold forever or something like that. Um, and he, he like very clearly puts them off to the side as like, we're not selling these. So what do you think about that? I think you better have a lot of money if you're going to do that. I, I think that's, 
a great way to compound at higher than the market rate of return because these are better companies than the market uh-huh. as a whole. Um, we're talking Coca-Cola, American Express, right. you know, companies like that. Um, but it, it, what really drives that is just the difficulty of being nimble mm-hmm. with your money at, mm-hmm. when you're that huge. And so having a few things you can just sit there and leave is really great. Um, in addition, you need to have, in order to be able to continue to jack up your returns, you need to have a pretty constant cash flow into, I think one of my books, I called it a Berkey. I think in, in uh, payback time, I called it a Berkey, oh, yeah, a Berkshire Hathaway that. type account, yeah. which is a cash flow coming in from someplace else that just keeps loading this account with cash that mm. you then have to invest. And so right now, for example, Buffett's sitting on $110 billion dollars that's coming in from all this hundred of companies that he owns entirely, that Berkshire owns entirely, which produce cash flow. And the CEOs of those companies take the portion of cash that they need to continue to drive growth and they get the rest of it out of their hands into Buffett's hands and then he reinvests it. And this has been a long time strategy of Berkshire Hathaway, which most of us don't have as an option. You mm-hmm. don't have a ton of money coming in from outside sources. And if you look at what Buffett's doing, I mean, essentially, he's loading up on oil companies right now. He owns, gosh, I think 20% of Occidental and and he's bought a whole bunch of Chevron. <clears throat> and it takes me back kind of to his old story that if, which would you rather have all the gold in the world or um, all of the agricultural land in the United States and 18 Exxons? And he's really <laughs> walking his talk, right? So he wants to have the energy companies I never heard that into this before. inflationary Would you rather period. have all the gold in the world or all the land in the U.S. plus 18 exons? All the ag land plus 18 exons. Yeah. <laughs> and and But otherwise, he doesn't have anything. He's not adding more money to Apple. He's not. Mm-hmm. He, he's bought a billion dollars of Berkshire stock because he thinks it's relatively cheap. Not super cheap, but a decent, decent place to put money for his investors. So somewhat of a bargain. And uh, that's it. So he hasn't bought more of Coca-Cola, American Express, um, you know, whatever, whatever the other companies that he, he owns. He hasn't bought know. more of any of those in no. a very long time. That's right. Because yeah. the, 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 they haven't been on sale. I mean, he was queried pretty strong in 2008 by investors in the May conference where they said, why, are, why didn't you sell Coca-Cola when it was extremely highly priced? And he said, I'm just not nimble like I used to be. Right. And, I, you know, I'd like to buy more of it, it gets, if it gets cheap enough, but it hasn't gotten cheap enough. Hmm. And you know, often that's the problem with anything Buffett owns is that if he owns it, everyone knows he owns it and they're not selling it. They, they can rely on him. These lemmings on Wall Street will look at Warren Buffett and say he's not selling it. So why should I? I can always yeah. defend my ownership by saying, hey, Buffett still owns it, even if it's gone down 50 percent, which is exactly what happened to Coca-Cola. It went down 50 percent. So did American Express. So, you know, that's a rough sledding for, for you if you're trying to build your portfolio like you are. It's tough to be sitting on these things and have them go down 50% because you don't know how long it's going to take for them to come back up again, mm-hmm. right? You just don't know. They're not fast-growing businesses, right? They're not, they're not like a Google or something. Um, so, yeah, I would, I would... And by the way, back to the original thing I was talking about is that having people working for me who deeply understand the difference between, you know, modern portfolio theory, which is everything is priced properly all the time, which is nonsense, 
as anyone who watched GameStop go through the roof knows. And and uh, value investors who are this quite great lump of investors who basically try to buy things cheap and hold them forever. Um, that's neither of those are the way we invest. Yeah. We're, we're, perfectly happy to buy Google, which is hardly a value investor stock, mm-hmm. very much a growth stock, and uh, and buy it when it's cheap. And so then the real issue becomes, can you, which is better, to hold or a really good franchise company like a Coca-Cola that you got cheap, like Buffett does, is it better to hold it or when it gets to intrinsic value, sell it and put your money in something else? Or sell it and, and have your money in cash. Have your money in cash. Right. Like, uh, that's a very real option. I just want to keep saying that. Right on. Because right it's on. just so easy to say, like, put your money in something else. And Yeah, for, fair enough. So cash becomes the option. And, I, you know, it, I think you just have to answer that question with, well, what is going on out there in the market? Is it a hot market being stimulated by the Federal Reserve with interest rates coming down? Right. We don't say we don't think of ourselves as being macro investors, but that's fairly significant versus a market where interest rates are going up Mm -hmm. and going to the recession and they're trying to slow down inflation, a vastly different macro environment. So the students that bought stocks in 2009 at our workshop and held them look brilliant today. But. It, it could be very easily the case that if you buy stocks in 2022 and hold them, you look like a moron 10 years from now. Except you wouldn't because we by definition, like you would have bought yeah. a great company that you wanted to hold forever. That's true. So in no so way is that like moronic just because no. the price is down when we also agree that price and value are unrelated. But you won't be getting... 25% returns like they got over over a 12-year period. Your returns are going to get much, much lower. They, they would, I would guess, be better than the market. And the market rate of return, by the way, could very easily be zero. So you'll do better than the market. So thank God for knowing how to invest. You'll do better than bonds, and which is really saying something because as they increase interest rates, bonds, of course, are going up mm-hmm. and will very likely get to a pretty nice rate of return, you know, six, eight percent, something like that, maybe higher. And and to do better than that, you're doing very well. But I think you will do better than that. I think you'll do better. You, you, my guess would be 15 percent. Buy stuff when it's cheap, hold it and you'll get a 15 percent return compounded. I would say that's probably very likely um, as opposed to buy it, let it go back to intrinsic value, sell it, wait six, eight, ten months and start picking up other companies as, as they get on sale. Um, and I think it only, I think it just depends on how aggressive are you willing to be? How badly do you want to get to financial independence quickly? You know, are you willing to be deeper in the deep end of the pool? Maybe right? it also depends on what's the other option? Like, I think we, I think you said that to me once when we were talking about this some long time I mean, I ago I just, about I thought I just gave you the other option buy buy and hold oh no 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 um by other option i mean like what's the other company you could go buy and i think oh, I you said that 
when we were talking about intr- the first time, like you taught me about intrinsic value and selling when you get to intrinsic value, I think I remember you saying something like, um, you know, it kind of like, you know, at, do you, what exact point do you sell? And you were like, well, if there's something else I want to put that money into, which is having an event, the price is low. I think it's going to double in, you know, whatever amount of two years or something. And here, this one, like, it's still a great company, but it's done its double already. I'd rather move the money into this other company that's having the event. So maybe part of it is is having that other option, because what we were talking about last time with the um, with the option of just holding your money in cash because there's nothing else to buy I mean maybe maybe that's part of the analysis okay am I gonna would I rather sell this company this is why I love you I love you sweetheart because you come <laughs> up with some interesting variations so I just wrote down these three different variations the first one is buy great companies on sale and then hold them yeah okay one second one buy great companies on sale and then sell them at sticker. Yeah. Sort of regardless. <coughs> Excuse me. Because Getting he's hungry. And then the third one is buy great companies on sale and sell them at sticker only when you have a, a place to put the money. Yeah. Right. So, because so the second option options. is if you're going to have, if those are the three options, then the second option automatically is sell it sticker and hold cash yeah and wait and wait yeah versus leave it in there hope it continues to go up yeah so i've got a variation for you on on that on those last two buy great and sell or buy great and sell only when you've got something to put the money into and we talked briefly about this and that is to use um sort of market signals that would tell you that big investors are, are exiting this company. Mm-hmm. And that way you don't ride it down. Or you could put short stop in. You could put stop losses in. Mm-hmm. And that way if it started to go down, right, you could put a stop loss in at 5% below the current price and it would just stop you out. You would automatically get sold out. Um, so those are all good options. And good rule one style investors use all three of these options. I think Guy Spear is more in the number one option uh, with his fund. And um, I'm definitely more in the number two option with my fund. And and uh, and I think, I, I don't know. I don't know that anybody's been in number three because it just hasn't been that available so much. Yeah, maybe that's why it's coming at me in such a uh, for case of first impression kind of way, even though I know it's not a first impression for me, but it's sort of coming at me that way. Maybe just because that's not really been done since hasn't I've really been, been done doing much. this. But I'd like to point one thing out, honey, and that is that all three of these start with buy a great company that's on sale. Right. And yeah. honestly, you guys, if you know how to do that, the rest of it is just icing on the cake. The cake is buying great companies on sale. And then your rate of return is going to vary depending on you know, what the market's doing out there, depending on which of these three strategies you use. But you're going to do very well 
if you buy great companies on sale and just keep doing that. So guess what? The key thing to all of this, in my view, is just learning what is a great company Absolutely. and what is on sale. I mean, Absolutely. what does on sale mean, right? We've written three books about that. We've got a lot out I there. Feel, I still think when to sell podcasts. is an under-discussed topic. It is definitely under-discussed. And, and I think I just kind of gave you the reason why it's less discussed. is <laughs> because we, we do lots of different things. And maybe we even, even the same person does different things over the course of their career. Um, and yeah. That makes and it a little more confusing. Maybe that's the answer. It's okay. I don't mind things being complicated and confusing. That's all right. Life is complicated and confusing. But <laughs> let's talk about it like it's real because it is. And I think I think that's right. Like Buffett does different thing or has not now so much. You're right. Like different amounts of money, different situations and gender different choices. So what maybe what say- we could talk about next time because I'm curious is whether or not tech companies are also in kind of their own different category. Yeah. I Just think that'd by be their cool. very let's, nature let's, of being let's look at tech companies harder to predict. through this lens yeah. of great, of on sale, of hold forever versus, right? Selling yeah. sticker, right. right? Let's do that. Let's take a look at that because guys, guess what? The leading edge of the stock market meltdown is tech companies right now. They're melting down, have melted down, and um, and it's not a simple thing to just say, oh yeah, go buy Facebook, you know, go buy Meta, with Zuckerberg spending ten billion dollars a year on this thing called the metaverse. Nobody even knows if it's real. And so, yeah, let's let's talk a little. That's the fascinating thing about tech stocks, right? Is how do you know where the future is going to be? And if you don't, right. how do you freaking predict out? And hopefully, what we to can do talk about that? it without getting into worth? a seven-episode boondoggle like we did with Netflix. Yeah, right. On. It's just so hard to talk about. <laughs> All right, we're just trying to keep the lid on it. All right, we will see you guys next week. I hope I hope this was useful for you. But what it boils down to, in my mind, is just I recognize it's exiting it can have some complexity to it. But the simplicity of this investing strategy is understand the business, get one that is really uh, has a really durable competitive advantage um, with great management. And that's a great company. And then buy it when it's got a big margin of safety. Those are the basics we started with on podcast number one. And they still apply here. So don't get lost in the noise about how to exit. That you like have that wrote those three categories. That's very useful. Let's talk about it some more. Okay. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And I'm really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that you're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only. And I really hope you enjoyed it.